Good morning, everyone, and welcome to The Culture. We're looking at the things in life that really matter, our weekly feature. And we're working our way through the classics of Raymond Chandler. So I don't know what time it is for you. For me, it's way too early in the morning here in Milan for me to have a gimlet, Philip Marlowe, our detective's favorite drink. But if it were later, I would have a gimlet as we talk through, and do have one as we talk through his classic novel, The Little Sister. In some ways, my head thinks The Long Goodbye, which is the last Chandler novel we're going to look at next week, is better. But if my head thinks that, my heart probably prefers The Little Sister, uh, written in 1949, is my favorite Chandler novel. And we'll spend the grab your gimlet in the evening and have a listen to this. Um, and uh, let's move on uh, from there. But before I get into Chandler and the culture, I just want to say that next week we'll be taking the show on the road. Um, as I make my promise to our community, I will always, always, always do the substacks. We've never missed one, and we won't, as long as there's breath in my body. But next week, uh, John and I, uh, my faithful companion, John Sancho Panza, um, are going to Butch to my Sundance, or Sundance to my Butch, depending on how you look at it. Probably Sundance to my Butch. Uh, we're going to Washington, and uh, we're going to do. We're going to see an awful lot. Of get the lay of the land and talk to our book folks uh, about the public relations for the last best hope, which we're serializing. What in the world was I thinking as I wrote this most important book of my career? Again, the last best hope. Uh, we will have the podcast tomorrow. Uh, we're doing the Raymond Chandler today. And then next week, while I'm in Washington, we'll finish our Chandler series uh, with a long goodbye, his last great novel. Um, and we'll also talk a little bit about Washington, and we'll continue on about The Last Best Hope. Again, it's available for pre-order, The Last Best Hope, A History of American Realism, available for pre-order on Amazon in both the United States and the UK. Please do order. So many of you have. I'm, I'm incredibly grateful. We're defeating the algorithm of Amazon, but it's very important that we get as many pre-orders as humanly possible. And so I turn to our community. Now's the time to pre-order The Last Best Hope on Amazon. Please do that. It'll make our life when we get going on the uh, PR for the book, and that's what these meetings are about. We'll get it. We'll get going on that next week, and this will make that so much easier. So thank you for those of you who pre-ordered, and for those of you who haven't, please, now's the time. Well, without further ado, grab your gimlet, and let's talk about The Little Sister of 1949. It's Raymond Chandler's fifth novel involving Philip Marlowe, his laconic detective, Knight's Errant, who takes us through uh, the seamy side of the American boom after the war, the post-war boom, where until him everything was pretty much thought of as, as sweetness and light. The American economy was booming. The United States was without a doubt the most dominant power in the world. And in these sunny days, of uh, Harry Truman and Dwight Eisenhower, Chandler reminded us there was a dark side to American life, that beneath the sunshine there were alleyways and darkness. And as people have said, a number of critics, he's moves the murder mystery from the uh, drawing room of Chris, Chris Christie and Dorothy Sayers, both of whom I love, into the back alleys of the United States. And, and Chandler invents almost a new way of speaking, a new form of American language, along with people like Scott Fitzgerald, who he admired, and Ernest Hemingway, uh, a more muscular language that suited our more muscular, striving, uh, violent, generous, romantic, cynical people. And all those things characterize Philip Marlowe, who in a lot of ways is the quintessential American good and bad. 
uh, and, a, and a character with whom I, am, I have great fondness, and I'm glad that so many of you have enjoyed these. We'll keep them coming. So Marlowe in this one is called in on a missing persons case, the little sister. And it, it, the case revolves around this missing person and a blackmail made against the Hollywood starlet Mavis Weld. And what it is is a chance for Chandler to explain his experience working as a screenwriter in Hollywood. To make it uh, in between the novels, Chandler is working as a screenwriter. Um, and his very low opinion of Hollywood as an industry uh, he worked most famously with Billy Wilder, the great director and writer, on the classic film noir. And if there's one you're going to watch this week, along with keeping up with our reading of the books, if there's one film noir to watch this week, it would be Double Indemnity, the classic film noir with the great Barbara Stanwyck, one of the great femme fatales of all time. Uh, and this was written, Double Indemnity, by Billy Wilder. And, uh, and Raymond Chandler, and it's wonderful. But evidently, Chandler couldn't stand working with Wilder. Uh, most novelists, and I speak as a writer, can't stand working with anybody else. It's a pretty solitary pursuit, and you don't want to make compromises. And the whole point of Hollywood is you work as a team. You're part of the studio system, and so you don't get to work on your own. So taking mavericks like Chandler and placing them in that the, is all about the collective, you go from the libertarian essential of the individual to the collective and there's bound to be friction and sure enough there was for Chandler who needed the money and so he kept with the screenwriting again best in double indemnity do watch it it might be the best technically of all the film noirs Fred McMurray is good and Barbara Stanwyck is better uh, well worth watching but while doing this with Billy Wilder Chandler came to really hate Hollywood and it comes across in The Little Sister which is about the shallowness and phoniness as, as uh, Marlowe would put it, of Hollywood. It also has one of the great characters um, in, in the Chandler universe, Orpha May Quest, who might be my favorite character. And Orpha May comes from the Midwest and is the most duplicitous character in Chandler's world of concentrated duplicity. Orpha May may take the queen. And Chandler famously puts it that Orpha May, that never anyone looked less like Lady Macbeth. That may be true. She is, looks like a mousy librarian, good-looking beneath, the, as he put it, the peepers, her glasses, but very much a venomous character in line with Lady Macbeth. Almost everything Orpha May says is a lie, and almost everything Orpha May does is done for her own realist, ruthless effect. She's not an ethical realist, Orpha May. She's more on the Machiavellian side of things, and she's just this fantastic character. And she spends the entire novel pretending to be offended by, by uh, Philip Marlowe seeing through her and then admitting later that she's indeed even worse than he thought. And the story begins with Orpha May Quest coming from the Midwest, Kansas, and asking um, Marlowe to find her older brother, Orrin, who is an out of, who's out of work, has come out west to seek his fortune, as so many Americans did after World War II, He's out of work in Bay City. Bay City, as we've said before, pseudonyms for Santa Monica, a place he liked to write about an awful lot. And so Oren is an out-of-work dreamer come to Bay City. Uh, it turns out, truth be told, that actually Oren Quest, Orpha May's brother, is a psychopathic ice pick murderer, which makes life an awful lot of fun as things go along. And that Oren is, is beyond any form of redemption. Orpha May might be even more evil uh, Oren is more crazy, and 
throughout the story, the reveal at the end is that Orphame, things are as always in, in, in Chandler, not what they seem, and in film noir, not what they seem. America is more than a sunny Eisenhower postcard. There's a darkness to all this striving. There's a desperateness to all this striving. There's a violence to all this striving. And Orphame, in the end, nothing is as it seems. She seems like a mousy librarian, but in the end, she sells out brother and her sister for not a very large amount of money, that she's willing to betray almost anything for a nickel, and that she's far from the prim proper uh, librarian type that she seems, and that Marlowe realizes she might be the greatest evil character um, in, all, in all the Marlowe stories, and that she is indeed not what she seems, that she's Lady Macbeth, even though she doesn't look like it. On the other hand, Mavis Weld, her half-sister, who is a rising Hollywood starlet and seems cynical and jaded and, and totally lecherous and, and without redemption, as you find out more about Mavis Weld in the story, she actually is willing to make sacrifices and give herself up for the people that she loves. So at the beginning, if you took things on appearances, which is kind of Chandler's point in The Little Sister, or Feme Quest would seem to be the kind of quintessential archetype, that she's this mousy, striving, prim, proper librarian, when in reality she's, uh, she's Lady Macbeth. And on the other hand, Mavis Weld, who seems this jaded, dissolute Hollywood starlet, is actually the one with morals, actually the decent one beneath it all. And, and that's really a key to, to understanding Raymond Chandler. Things are not as they seem. And as somebody who does political risk for a living, you have to look at actions. You have to look at motivations that, in effect, we're detectives. What I do, and I say this sometimes in the office, that how's our detective shop going? Because our job is to figure out what people are going to do and why they're going to do what they do, which is exactly what Philip Marlowe does. Uh, I just don't get as many gimlets, sadly, but, but there you go. And so Mavis Weld is the unlikely heroine of the story, just as Orpha Mae Quest is the unlikely villainess of the story. Um, and, you know, you, know, you, know, you know, in the end, Orpha Mae uh, wants to get money, chisel money out of her half-sister Mavis Weld, and that's the reason she's come out to the West Coast, because she thinks Oren's managed to get money out of her and wants to get either Oren's money or more money for herself. Um, this is the ultimate example to the little sister of what happens with Marlowe and why he's really the ultimate realist, um, I think. Realists understand the problem with the left is that they think they can change. Think of it as history is a river. And the left thinks they can change the course of the river. Just it will happen. There'll be no problem. You can change the course of nature of organic realities. You can ignore all that and live in a utopian world where you make the world be what it is. It's magical thinking that, that there aren't organic realities to life, but instead you can remake the world in any way you choose to. That the river can be rerouted now without any problem, that you can dam it up without any problem, that you can artificially make the world be what you want it to be. And this utopian problem, revolutionaries have run into this problem from Robespierre and Saint-Just on, when Saint-Just says to Robespierre and the French Revolution, what if the people aren't as good as we need them to be? As though you could eradicate human behavior and remake it. 
and this is, of course, from a conservative realist point of view, utter nonsense, not what we think at all. The other problem, though, is reactionaries on the far right who think that nothing changes, that the river just has to be looked at passively and that nothing can be done. Realists hedge this, I think, in a, in a totally human, realistic way and say, look, at the edges, you can change the way the river flows. At the edges, you can affect the course of history. And indeed, you must ethically affect the course of history. But you can't remake the direction of the river just as you sit, sit there and have popcorn or, in our case, a gimlet and watch it flow by and do nothing that the ethical imperative is to make the changes you can. The serenity prayer of Reinhold Niebuhr, uh, that great ethical realist, and also the, the serenity prayer used by Alcoholics Anonymous, of course, about the difference between changing the things you can, accepting the things you can't, and having the wisdom to know the difference. I mean, that's ethical realism. Niebuhr nailed it right there. And Marlowe is the ultimate kind of ethical realist. He certainly has ethics beneath all the cynicism. And what he tries to do is influence events at the edge. Um, he can't, all the way through the story, uh, even more than most, the little sister of the Marlowe stories, he's always arriving late at a murder. He's always finding a dead body. He's always getting knocked out and coming to and then having Orin Quest about to kill him. He's always a step behind. This fiendishly complicated as all the best of Chandler. Don't try to follow the intricacies of the plot. Let them wash over you like in the big sleep, and you'll do much better. The key, as ever, to Chandler is the characterization. Do the characters act in a way which makes sense given who they are? And they always ring true. And that's the great strength to the writing of Chandler. And so Marlowe realizes that he can influence events, but only at the edge, that, that he can't remake society. He can't right every wrong. He can't make everything perfect, but that doesn't mean he doesn't have to try to change the things at the edges that he can. There's another character in the book beyond Orpha Mae Quest and Mavis Weldon. Again, all the interesting characters in Little Sister are women other than Marlowe, which is interesting. And the last character worth noting is Dolores Gonzalez, the incredibly sensual minor film star, the frenemy of Mavis Weld. And Dolores, who's flirting with uh, Marlowe throughout the whole thing, I mean, you feel like you need a cigarette, snake, 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 the dialogue. Incredibly sexual, sensual, interesting. Not the least bit smutty, but incredibly suggestive. And it's a delight, the language between the two of them. And Dolores Gonzalez is a character who seems irredeemably decadent, and then you realize that she's actually doing certain things in the story out of love. She also isn't acting in character. She seems to be one thing and is another. She seems to be this jaded minor film star interested only in sex, when in the end, what interests her are matters of the heart. Uh, these matters of the heart make Dolores do some pretty awful things that I'll say for the story for you. But in the end, she's motivated by love and not by sex. And that's interesting, too. But she does some very wicked things, and in the end, Marlowe decides to tell the police late what's going on when he's finally worked out this fiendishly complicated puzzle having been behind all the way, constantly finding dead bodies with Oren's ice pick in them most of the time. I mean, and I love that a side character just happens to be, you know, a psychopathic killer, serial killer. He's not easily the most important thing. The three women, Orpha May, Mavis, and Dolores, are far more interesting. But in the end, Marlowe decides to tell the police what's going on, but to do so too late 
so that organic events take their course, because in those organic events at the end, relating to Dolores and what she's done, there is a form of justice. It's not perfect justice, but it's karmic justice. In a broader philosophical sense, what happens makes sense and is fair and is just. And Marlowe realizes in this and in his other stories, this is about as good as it's going to get. That's about uh, as best as it can get. And so it's very important to see that Marlowe realizes for all that he's an incredible, incredibly smart and incredibly motivated, that at best you can only affect events at the edges. That doesn't mean do nothing. That's what reactionaries think. Have the wisdom to know the difference between what you can change and what you cannot. And this basic realist lesson infuses the Chandler stories and I think makes them incredibly real and realistic. And that's why they still seem so modern and the language seems so fresh. Because in essence, uh, Philip Marlowe is an ethical realist, and I'm sure that's why I love him so much. The last thing to say about the story is that there's a great soliloquy, and often in Chandler, when Marlowe's off on his own, and he's so often, it's so existential, he's so often eating a sandwich on his own, drinking coffee on his own, staying up all night on his own, working on the chess problem. He's a truly solitary figure up to now. He's existential. He's trying to make the world right merely because... He thinks he can. He lives in a godless world, Marlowe. Uh, and this is kind of the existentialist. God is dead, but that doesn't mean you become Jim Morrison. It means instead you have to find an ethical code yourself. You can't rely on the system of the church to do so that you have to find an ethical code involving God or not on yourself and then live by this code. That that's your imperative in being a human being. And Marlowe is the ultimate existentialist. He's struggling to live up to this code, even though he knows his limits, the limits to what he can do in this dark alley society, but that in the end, it's up to him to find a form of justice. And so he goes off on this philosophical rant about the phoniness and shallowness of Los Angeles and Hollywood, while at the same time, you're aware he loves them. There is such a love-hate relationship that, that Chandler has through Marlowe for California and for America. And this comes from, I think, him being a, a British American, having mixed background. Uh, you love and you hate things. I adore the United States. I hope still to serve someday in the American government. But I do think of it as, as Paul McCartney and John Lennon talked about each other as kind of an ex-fiancé. You're so angry when the country does something wrong, and it's because you care about it, and you're so proud of it when it does the right thing, and you love and hate it, and you're estranged from it, and you're drawn to it in my case, in kind of a Steinbeck, Bruce Springsteen sort of way and want to serve it still. But you see it warts and all and you want it to do better. And, and Marlowe goes off on a fantastic rant about the shallowness and phoniness of America, uh, California and Hollywood, L.A. That's really fantastic, where he says, you're, you're not being human tonight, Marlowe. And he uses this as a litany where he lists all the things wrong with the place. while at the same time, you're aware of how much he truly loves it. Um, one last recommendation to make. Um, there is a version of The Little Sister in filmic form. Again, these are all very film stories because kind of, it is cinematic. You can see why they wanted him to be a screenwriter and why Billy Wilder put up with him. Um, in 1969, the film Marlowe was made starring James Garner, and it's not nearly as good as Double Indemnity, let me be clear. It's not nearly as good, but James Garner is always very likable, and it's a version of The Little Sister. So if you're interested, if you enjoy the book and you want further 
uh, a, a filmic version of Little Sister. Do check out Marlowe 1969 with James Garner. But my pick for the week, if we're going to do film noir, is The Great Double Indemnity, written by Raymond Chandler and Billy Wilder, which drove Chandler crazy, but also drove him to the artistic heights of writing The Little Sister, which in my heart is probably my favorite of all the Marlowe stories, because no one is as they seem. Thank you very much. I love doing The Culture. I'm so glad so many of you liked it and the numbers for it are so good. Uh, tomorrow, to catch up with our time, um, I had some stuff to do yesterday, day off. But tomorrow, to keep us within my pledge of a week, we will go back to our usual time on Thursday by looking at what in the world was I thinking, Chapter 3 of The Last Best Hope, A History of American Realism. And we're going to look at Chapter 3, which is one of my favorites, when William Seward, an often forgotten figure, I hope to Tarantinoize, much as Tarantino revitalized the career of John Travolta in Pulp Fiction, I hope to make Seward and another William Boris, some other people in the book that people have forgotten about in American history, famous again, because they should be. And William Seward, through using realist principles, saved the United States from war with Britain during the American Civil War and might possibly have saved the Union in consequence, and we simply don't know enough about this guy. And there are all kinds of side characters, including, including a crazy captain who actually was the, the basis for Captain Ahab in Moby Dick. So it's going to be a lot of fun. I enjoyed writing the chapter on Seward and Tarantinoize him. Please do remember to pre-order the book, The Last Best Hope, A History of American Realism. Uh, in both Amazon and the British version. That would be great. Hope you enjoyed this Chandler, and we'll move on next week with our final look at Chandler, which is The Long Goodbye, probably the best of all the Chandler stories. So go have that gimlet and enjoy your evening, and thanks so much for spending the time with me. <laughs>